Hello everyone and welcome back to season two of For the Good of the Game. My name is John Davis, JD, and I'm your host. Our theme for season two is relationships, as inspired by a video created by Coach Bill Curry shortly after 9-11, entitled The Huddle. We're going to get more into The Huddle with Coach Curry in episode two, but for today I have the distinct pleasure of introducing our guest for our pilot episode. Hall of Famer Anthony Munoz was selected with the number three overall pick out of the University of Southern California. He spent 13 years with the Cincinnati Bengals, during which time he was selected for 11 Pro Bowls with nine first-team All-Pro selections. He was the 1991 Walter Payton Man of the Year Award winner. He was selected for the 1980s All-Decade team, as well as the all-time teams for the NFL's 75th and 100th anniversaries. Anthony's career culminated in his enshrinement into Pro Football's Hall of Fame with the class of 98 in Canton, Ohio. His coach for his entire tour with the Bengals was Coach Jim McNally. Coach McNally's 40-year-plus career coaching included 28 years at the NFL level. He started his career playing football for the University of Buffalo, and after he finished playing, he began his coaching career at UB as well. After University of Buffalo, Coach McNally moved on to Marshall University, where he was part of the staff that helped rebuild the Herds program after the tragic plane crash that killed most of the team and coaching staff. Coach McNally also coached at Boston College and Wake Forest at the college level prior to moving to the Bengals and beginning his NFL coaching career, which included stops with the Bengals, the Panthers, the Giants, and the Bills. Most recently, Coach McNally served as a consultant to several NFL teams. Coach McNally is enshrined in the University of Buffalo Athletic Hall of Fame, as well as the Greater Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. Before we get into the episode, I want to remind you to be sure and subscribe to the podcast below and hit the bell so you get notified each time a new video episode comes out on YouTube. If you prefer to listen to the podcast audio only, we're on all the streaming services, whichever one you prefer to download and listen to your podcast. So without further ado, welcome to episode one, our pilot for season two. I want to know from each of your perspectives as coach and player, and Anthony, I'll, I'll let you open up. How do you see, when you watch the NFL today, how do you see, uh, for good or bad, or both, you know, how the offensive line play specifically has changed in the game at the NFL level? Well, I think, first of all, what I see, I don't see what Jim and I had a chance to experience. I played for the Bengals for 13 years and had one line coach. That was Jim McNally. I know a lot of offensive linemen that play – eight, nine, 10 years, and they go through three, four, five offensive line coaches. So pretty unique to spend the whole your whole career with one team and have the same guy, especially coming into the NFL the same year. So I, I don't think you see, at least from what I see outside of the game, watching the game, I don't see that continuity, that uh, those relationships built like we had a chance to build for 13 years uh, with myself and a lot of the other guys that I played with. So I think uh, – I know for myself, I had a unique situation playing in the NFL for 13 years and working with Jimmy uh, all 13. So I'm very thankful for that. That's why, Coach, I mean, I'm sure you, you echo that. But from a unique coach's perspective, how do you think it's changed that, you know, from, from when you were there? Well, I think uh, exactly what Anthony said was uh, most of our guys, our key guys, uh, were together minimum six, seven, eight, nine years, Anthony 13. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, 
you know, Forrest Gregg was our coach for four years. And then Sam came in there for another eight or nine. And Anthony and I were both there. Uh, and I've got to give credit to Mike Brown because uh, they did not make a lot of coaching changes. I mean, the head coach changed, but if they liked the assistant, they kept the assistant. And then certainly that kept our offensive line, uh, you know, pretty coordinated. The only other thing is that uh, because of all the technology and the videotapes and the numbers of coaches, uh, I'm not going to say now that the older coaches couldn't adapt because, for, for example, personally, I try to stay up on all the latest techniques, et cetera, but we've made the game kind of complicated and it's not anybody's fault. It's just that there are so many different personnel changes. One time there's five wide receivers, the next time three tight ends, the next time six defensive backs, and uh, uh, all the different uh, blitzes, etc. Uh, we did have to uh, uh, block a lot of that stuff, but now the game has become so technical uh, in the offensive area and it's become such a passing game that that has definitely changed. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Coach Weish. I, I was so blessed to meet him. Uh, of course, for those that, that may not know or may not know Coach Sam Weish, he passed away in January of this year, unfortunately. Um, absolute great coach. And uh, obviously, you guys were there during his whole tenure. He was actually credited with a couple of things that are kind of interesting, and it relates to the question I'm going to ask. Um, he was credited with the sugar huddle, which which ultimately forced the NFL to change the rules because he used to send 12 people out into the offensive huddle to try and, you know, scheme the defense a little bit. And then he's also credited with the no huddle offense, uh, you know, as far as being the originator of that. So during his tenure there, um, knowing the kind of guy he was, at least had my brief exposure to him, how, how do you think the culture under Coach Weiss was was conducive to building those relationships you guys talked about. Coach, I'll let you go first on this one. Well, um, the sugar huddle actually was a huddle where you lined up about two yards from the line of scrimmage and called the play. And then obviously the no huddle was you were right at the line of scrimmage. Right. But uh, Sam was very innovative. There was no question about it. And Anthony will tell you, we spent the majority of our practice time uh, learning and memorizing the, the words uh, than we did necessarily. Uh, we, we worked technique, don't get me wrong. We worked a lot real hard on technique, but we spend a lot of time on just the communication uh, of the plays and the, and the buzzwords and the fake calls, et cetera. Uh, so that Boomer could call the plays at the line of scrimmage and no one would have any idea what he was talking about. Yeah, you know, it's interesting Jimmy talks about that because for me as an offensive player, Sam made it fun because he was so innovative, but not saying it just because Jimmy's here, but I'm thankful we had Jimmy there to kind of balance things out. Uh, you're right. I came from L.A. right during showtime, you know, with Magic and James Worthy. Our, our practices – resembled a lot of the way the Lakers played. It was almost like fast break football at times, you know, with the communication and the, the no huddle offense and the sugar and then walk by, you know, huddle, which we were still on the ground and boomers calling plays. But you know, the thing about it, it made us really hold each other accountable mentally. 
because we knew Boomer had all the terminology. So we had to spend all the time learning the terminology, which made it fun because we went into a game and we had two or three different ways to call a play. I mean, we could go with this way to call a play or that way. And, uh, you know, defensive linemen would look at us like, uh, what in the heck are you guys talking about? And we would just go. So, uh, you know, I, I really appreciated Sam and what he brought to the game. But again, it was good to have Jim McNally, who was so solid with technique and being able to coach us and teach us and really be technically sound with all the stuff we were doing there. The thing we really did that other teams don't do is we sat at the line of scrimmage for almost whatever the 32nd or whatever time limit it was at that time. We'd go right up to the line of scrimmage, but we wouldn't snap the ball until the last second or two. So it wasn't, it was a no huddle offense, but not necessarily always a fast pace offense. So a defensive lineman would be in their stance uh, uh, waiting for the play to come about. And he would be, because he never knew when the ball was going to be snapped. That was, that was very, very interesting. And, uh, and a number of defensive players will tell you it was, yeah. it was hard on them. <laughs> I'll bet it was, I'll bet it was. It's not like, you know, you have, you know, everybody's uh, all the younger kids now are used to the, the videos of, of, uh, you know, Omaha, Omaha with Peyton Manning when he, you know, all the, all the different uh, checkoffs and everything that guys do now. What about, let, let's focus a little bit on, on the relationship and specifically for right now between you guys, coach, what do you think is most important in establishing with, with whether it was with Anthony personally or, or any of the offensive linemen? And you guys did talk about, you mentioned on the outset, you know, having that much time together, which is unusual, but what's most important about establishing that great working relationship? Well, I mean, I think what you have to, it's important, but how does it become important? I think you just have to be yourself. And uh, the issue is, if you're just yourself and don't work hard and aren't updated on the newest uh, techniques or plays, then just because you're, you, you are yourself uh, does not make a great relationship. If you're yourself and you can help the players with updated techniques or uh, getting them ready for a game, et cetera, then that's important. So my point is you need to be yourself, but yet you need to have some expertise being yourself. If you're not yourself and uh, and you pretend to be somebody else, or you, I mean, I'm like five foot nine if you stretch me, but I never pretended I was six foot four. And <laughs> no one really said that little SOB. I mean, they might have under their tongue, but I mean, I don't think they looked at me as a short guy uh, or a small man. I did play college football, but I mean, after they saw, oh, look at this little guy. Well, then maybe two weeks later, I wasn't just this five foot nine inch guy. I was their coach. You know what I mean? And it would be the same thing with a player. Uh, and you might have some player that was only six foot two and 260 pounds. And you'd say, well, he's too small. But if he whipped everybody's butt, you wouldn't look at him any further as an undersized guy. I don't know. That's kind of a complicated answer, but... No, not at all. Not at all. And, and Anthony, I heard it. Uh, I was talking to um, 
uh, Ted Cottrell one time about Bruce Smith. And he said, and, and I've heard similar comments about you. You know, he, he said that the beauty of a guy like Bruce was as great as he was as an athlete and a player, he wanted to be coached. Did you feel like regardless of, I mean, you're a guy that was, you know, selected for 11 pro bowls, you know, you obviously developed a level of prowess on the field, you know, dirt early on in your career. Did you feel like the kind of guy that was constantly seeking to get better by working with coach McNally and the other coaches? I think I did. And I think that's something that I share with young players and young guys that are playing is don't ever get to a, don't ever get to a point where you think you have it all because I played 13 with Jimmy and I was still learning in my 13th year. So yeah, you got to remain coachable. You, uh, you, you have to be like a sponge. I mean, and the great thing about, you know, you're talking about relationships. I think the word that comes to me is confidence. After I saw that Jimmy weighed about 235, 240 at the University of Buffalo, I, I got some confidence in the, you know, because he, he was always smaller in, in, in weight. But uh, no, I think the confidence in what he's teaching us. And then for a player, I believe the coach has to, to be confident that we can do what he's, what he's doing. And then he gives us the freedom to, you know, I, I remember midweek when we didn't stall, Jimmy would say, okay, you have this stuff you, you need to use. You need to, you need to really settle on what type of pass that you need to settle on and then believe in it and do it Sunday. So therefore he had the confidence for us, what he was teaching us to pick and choose the different technique and then to use it and to stay with it and to be confident. But, uh, and I think, you know, the, the thing that really impressed me about Jimmy as a coach was that I'll never forget his words. And I don't know if he remembers this, but when we first started, he goes, I have no plans to be a head coach or a coordinator. I just want to be an offensive line coach and make you guys the best players possible. To me, that's saying volume that he just, as an offensive line coach, he wanted to be the best coach and wanted to give us the best technique to be the best offensive lineman. So, you know, for me, just believing in what he was teaching me. And I knew that he was nonstop in teaching me and teaching the guys. So, I mean, that's where that confidence comes that you can really see that he cares about what he's teaching us. And he cares about putting us in the best position to, to be successful, but allowing us the freedom to, to kind of tinker watching a Jackie Slater or watching other tackles as we used to, and then incorporate bits and pieces to the technique. And, you know, Jimmy was, he had his stuff, but I don't believe Jimmy was a guy that said, it's totally 100% my way or the highway. It was like, okay, we're going to look at other technique and we're going to kind of put it together and bake it and make it the best instead of just, you know, being, you know, 90, 95%. He wanted the, the stuff to be 100%. Yeah, I learned from Anthony. We would give Anthony or other people some different techniques and say, how does this feel? Well, that we, we actually labeled a technique off of a guy named Kirk Scrafford, who was a free agent for us and a pretty good player. And he would play left tackle either, uh, you know, when Anthony retired or perhaps Anthony was out for a practice or something. And we called it the Scrafford tilt. And it was, I mean, so, I mean, whatever works, we wanted to, to try to use and, uh, the, the thing I give Anthony a lot of credit is that, uh, you know, when you're a coach, uh, it, it's just like, you know, most of the coaches that are, that are good coaches or whatever, uh, maybe they're actors, maybe they're politicians, have a little orneriness to them. So 
I was a little ornery. When I mean a little ornery, I might cuss a little bit or I might, uh, uh, you know, maybe raise my voice, only not get mad at anybody, but make some stupid, funny thing. And uh, uh, Anthony never, ever, ever once uh, got mad at me or, uh, or <laughs> said, hey, Jimmy, that's out of line. This that. And I didn't do that often. I'm just saying that he understood that uh, my personality was one where I was a little wacky and uh, it, it kind of made for fun <laughs> in our meeting room. You know, uh, I can't remember every incident, but <laughs> occasionally I would... It wasn't often with Anthony, but one or two times uh, guys would run off the field. I'd scream at him. I'd say, what the what's going on? And then Anthony, a couple of times, he'd bark right back at me. And I and I and I loved that, you know, because, man, he had fire in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, the one time, Jim, Jim, one time Jim, I got to tell this one story. Yeah. He played with a guy named William Gay at SC, who <laughs> was a D lineman. And he played for the Lions. And. I don't know if I made up the story, but Anthony could see it on film. Every time he'd get a sack or he'd, get, he'd hit the quarterback, he'd kind of dance and showboat. I said, Anthony, I don't care if this guy's your best buddy or whatever. You got to kill this guy. You got to whatever. That game, he knocked this William Gay around, oh, 15 or 20 times. I mean, he just obliterated him. But <laughs> that no, was gotta, kind of – You have to understand, that's a true story. And William Gay – was a tight end at USC that I played next to at USC, and they moved him to defensive end. And, boy, I'll never forget, Jimmy told me this, and he came to our locker room because we're playing in Detroit, knocking on the door to say hi to me before the game. And I said, no, tell him to go. I'll say hi to him after the game. I don't want to see him. But Jimmy had me going. But the thing with Jimmy, and a lot of coaches, I think, get wrapped up that they have to scream and yell constantly. And, Jimmy, you know, there's times where you got to raise your voice, but then there's words that you can say that that really you know those buttons you push to get you fired up and I think that's what Jimmy did so well he'd, he'd get his voice going once in a while but then he would say things that you know really kind of hey here here and then all of a sudden you'd, you'd hear that it wasn't a scream or yell and you'd say I understand what he's saying I got to get my well, I learned a great lesson I was in college coaching at Marshall University and that's the team that had the plane crash and it was never my personality to yell or scream or anything. And one time, like a second string guard lined up and he went off sides or something. And I kind of kicked him in the butt from behind, not hard, but, and he turned around and he said, if you ever do that again, and I said, what did I do? And I remember that, I don't know if that's what, what took me to whatever, but I never wanted to embarrass anybody. Uh, and I, I, it was always hard for me when a newspaper guy would, would want an evaluation of an old line when maybe somebody would give up a sack or maybe they didn't play well for a particular game. And uh, I guess I always tried to double talk and I never wanted to throw anyone under the bus uh, for whatever reason, because uh, when you do that, then they will lose they'll lose respect for you in the meeting room. So anyway. Well, and I think Anthony hit on it a minute ago. You know, it's, it's, he was talking about you coming out and demonstrating, you know, your expertise. And, and, and that touches on what I started out talking about, which is just the respect factor. I think, you know, there's always, 
at every level, but certainly in the pros. And I obviously I haven't played or coached, so I, I'm I'm looking for validation of this with you guys. But at every level, I think um, there is a a little bit of a testing period. You know, the, the the player wants to see that the coach knows what he's talking about because it gives him confidence in the technique he's learning. And the coach wants to see that the player is willing to learn and try and, and strive to do that. Anthony, let me ask you this. And in, in, again, you know, as dominant as you were in, in your tenure there with the Bengals, um, you, I've, I've heard this come up in, in a couple of conversations with guys, not privately, like even on interviews and TV. Um, how, much how, how much of a sense of responsibility did you feel once you were recognized, you know, after you've been to several Pro Bowls and all that kind of thing, how much did you feel a sense of responsibility to mentor the rookies and the new guys coming in uh, and kind of bring them into the Bengals' way, particularly in the offensive line room? Well, I think it was – I mean, I think that was key. I think because the offensive line has to work so much together as a group, and you understand when you get a little older, younger guys are there to try to take your job, but you want to – you know, the thing that I was impressed with, Jimmy gave us so much and he allowed us to do that. I'll never forget late in my career, he allowed me to take guys during practice and work on some individual stuff with them. I mean, I'm still playing and I'm still working on our game plan, but he would let me go over. So that kind of reinforced encouraging guys, you know, really, you know, don't keep it all to yourself because it's a group, you know, so many times, you know, players and coaches try to keep their stuff together and we're a team. So, um, you know, it happened to me in college. I had older linemen when I got to USC that really tried to help me in the classroom and, and on the field. And I think it was the same. You know, I had Dave Lapham. I had Jim McNally as my coach. Then I had Dave Lapham, you know, as my left guard early in my career. And he helped me out a lot. So, yeah, I so I really saw that as a responsibility as someone that had been around the system for a while to really try to encourage and help the younger guys when they came in. Yeah, Anthony was actually my assistant coach his last couple of years. We didn't have assistant line coaches and so forth. And he was definitely uh, one of my coaches. I would say, okay, Anthony, you take the tackles at this period. And maybe I took somebody else and said, take the guards or centers. And oh yeah, well, so I used him as a coach and uh, because I knew he knew what he was talking about. The other thing I will say is, I think the present day coaches nowadays are so afraid to get fired because they will get fired. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, 32 teams, if teams don't win within a year or two, they fire the head coach, almost the whole staff. I don't think there's that much concern whether the coach does it. I mean, I think a coach might, be trying to do a good job with his players uh, so he doesn't get fired. So he does. So he, they look at him as, well, he's a good teacher. I don't think down deep that the coaches really care that much about the individual players. And it's not their fault. It's that there's so much pressure put on them mm -hmm. because they make so much money. The assistant coaches now make so much money that if they don't do the job, their job is on the line. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about a lot of money. I mean, in the, you know, 20 years ago, a guy that was just a normal assistant coach, a backfield coach, a line coach, a linebacker coach would make so much money. Nowadays, they make lots of money. And the owners, they want production. So 
a lot of that now is you're almost coaching scared. I don't mean you're, you're personally scared, but you're scared for your future. And uh, uh, that's why the organizations, uh, the Steelers, the Bengals, uh, I don't know how many other teams I can mention, the Patriots, of course, they were always winning. Uh, the more they keep, the more the assistant coach feels that if you have a bad year or things don't go so good, that you're still going to be the coach for another year, two, three, four years. All of that stuff has changed. However you put that out there. Well, and I think there's an element that I didn't catch on to until I probably after being uh, at FBU for a year and working with a lot of guys. And Anthony, I know exactly what you were talking about because I've, I have been literally mesmerized watching coach McNally coach. And the cool thing is here's a guy that has, you know, 40 plus years experience, 28 years as an NFL coach. And I'm watching him coach in many cases, middle school and high school age kids. And he's, he's able to take this PhD understanding of the game and break it down to a 12 year old or 14 year old or 16 year old. And that's a gift. And what I discovered was I wondered why so many coaches were protective. But when you think about it, and coach, you just described the scenario. When you are paid to take grown men and get them to perform better than they think they can as a unit, only to be let go when they don't perform for whatever reason, whether it's your fault or not, I can see where guys have a degree of insecurity, you know, and 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 there's this there's this lack of finite, you know. Uh, delineation as you go through your career. So I, I, it took me a while, but I got, I understand for sure. Um, you, know, you know, it's amazing. I just have to add this point. And, uh, you know, I've been involved. We have a, it's called the NFL alumni Academy up at the hall of fame. We have these players that are being trained uh, for if teams lose somebody, they can sign them. They're guys that were cut at the last cut. And I've been up there like three of the last four weeks with about a handful of offensive linemen. And it's funny because there's a young offensive line coach that's been an intern with like a half dozen NFL teams. And the thing, I don't say a whole lot, but I chuckle inside when this guy's sitting there and we're going through the technique and he's either taking ownership or he's saying this coach gave it to him from this team. And I think back to between 1980 and 1992, and we were doing every one of those drills. They just rename them and tweak them. And it was a Jim McNally or a Howard Mudd that was, you know, Jimmy was giving me these drills when I was in my ninth year or 10th year. And, and you know, now they're doing it again, but they just kind of rename these drills, rename these techniques. But I don't say anything because I don't want to, you know, put a damper on, you know, these guys are pretty enthusiastic and excited about coaching. And I, and I think about it and say, yep, I did that same technique. Jimmy taught us, you know, back in 89, 88 Super Bowl year. So that's, that's the crazy thing about it. When you, when you talk about a Jim McNally and the technique and the, and, the, and the drills we did, you see a lot of offensive line, young offensive line coaches think that this guy drew it up that's coaching now for the Packers or for the 49, whatever, whatever team they're with. They, they label this drill with those guys. And once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll step up. No, this is, we did this back in the age. Jim McNally gave us this. And, uh, like, when the guy was trying to make a point about um, – he was talking about the up the up stance, Jimmy, you know, going from a two-point or a three-point. And he said, today do our linemen. He says, no. He said, back when Anthony was playing, they had to get down all the time. They weren't allowed to stay up and up. And I said, no. I, I did jump. And I said, no. I said, Jimmy gave me the freedom. There was a game where I, I stayed in a two-point about 80% of the time. 
You know, it just, I said, it depends on the personality that you're playing, the personnel. But they try to say, well, you couldn't do this then. Now we do it now. But, you know, Jimmy gave me, the guys, the freedom. If we felt comfortable on a run block, staying in an upstance, we stayed in an upstance. But get down if you don't feel comfortable. So we had a chance. And, and I've been talking to these guys, Jimmy, about on the ball, off the ball, you know, taking the line of scrimmage. And, and these guys are like, whoa, you know, cutting the split down. Well, uh. Here's what's happened, okay? Back in the old days when I was brought up as a coach, <clears throat> We had a ditto machine that you went, went like this, and the <laughs> ditto made the, the papers. Oh, oh, spit, okay, spitting out those we had the, sheets. We had the old, uh, the old projectors, and, and we, that the rookies had to make sure got on the way game, so the plane to the hotel. They yeah, no and, and and then and what would then what would happen if we wanted to learn football? We would go and visit some other coaches in the NFL that perhaps we didn't play the game. You might even go to a college. When I was in college, I would go visiting other coaches in spring practice and so forth. Now, for whatever reason, with all the technology, and I'm not down on the new young coaches because they want to do a good job, but now they're basically computer guys. That's what they are. They learn through the computer. They see things happen on the computer. Uh, they learn from maybe an older coach, but they did not really have to do the heavy, hard research that we had to do back in the old days. And, uh, and it's not their fault. It's just the technology, like for example, Coaches don't even need to go to a clinic anymore. They can go on YouTube now and go to a certain coach's name. And there's some technique on there that, that you can see, uh, you know, whatever. But I mean, you had to, in the old days, you had to go to somebody, watch them coach it, and then you coach it yourself or you feel it. If you couldn't feel it, your own body moving, but I don't think, the coaches do that now. And my last point I will make is that offensively, because of the passing game, because of the expertise of some of the younger coaches that are really smart, you know, the coach from the Rams and, uh, you know, some of those younger coaches and the Bengals and this, that, the other is they are, there's so much technicality with wide receivers, empty formations, defensive backs now are blitzing and they're dropping out defensive linemen. They used to do that in the old days, but now it has become an obsession to confuse the offense. And that's why a guy like Ben Roethlisberger, as soon as he gets the ball, it's out of his hands. So whatever whatever formations and plays and, uh, you know, our pass routes they have, uh, he catches the ball and it's gone. And I think Joe Burrow was like that also. But my point is that before it used to be fun to coach, now it's hard to coach because there's so many videotapes and so many situations and if they're in this and you're in that and the ball's on the left hash mark, but they're in this personnel, we've actually made a monster of the game. Hey, John, if I could just share a story about absolutely talking about the time and effort that our coaches put into it. Now, I kind of chuckled. It was pretty good. 
my first two years in the league, I went back to Southern California in the off season before I moved here year round to Cincinnati. Well, so, you know, you have a three hour time difference, you know, nine o'clock in California is midnight here. So Jimmy calls me one night and it's gotta be midnight. Cause it's about nine o'clock California time and I'm relaxing and I know he's in the office. So midnight, the guy's in the office in the off season. And he, he knew that I would lift and run and then I would work on some technique. So he gets me on the phone and he says, so I have the phone. He goes, okay, get in your stance. So I get in my stance with the phone and my wife's looking at me and he says, okay, shift your weight. You know, and he, he goes through all these things that he's been working on and I do it. And I say, okay, so we finished talking the next day I lift, I run and then I'm working on what he's given me. So then about a week goes by, he calls again about midnight this time. He says, okay, get back in your stance. So I lay in my bed, and I, he goes, okay, you're in your stance? I said, yeah. He goes, now, and I'm taking mental notes because I got to practice this the next day. He goes, now shift your, you know, do this, do that. And I'm going, okay, I got it, I got it. I hang up the phone. <laughs> so I do it the next day. But you know, the first time I'm literally in my stance with the phone, and the next time I knew he was going to give me some more good stuff. But that's the difference. Midnight, the guy offseason is working on technique in the office and calling us to give, you know, then we moved here year round my third year. And then, you know, we were here the whole time, but that was the time and commitment that, you know, guys like Jimmy were putting into to making sure even in the off season, they had stuff for us to get better. That's awesome. That is a great story. Coach, you, you were, you were at university of Buffalo as a player from 61 to 64. And then you jumped right into coaching and you were at, you were there as a coach until 70. Does that, that basic 10-year period as a player coach, um, did, did that kind of give you the foundation for what became, you know, the essence of how you coach? Uh, or did you learn so much along the way at other stops before you got to the Bengals? Well, what happened was uh, when I was a I, – I, it took me five years to graduate. So my fifth year I was a student coach, and then I was a graduate assistant. Then I was a freshman coach – because that they had freshman football at that time. And there was one coach in particular uh, that he was the offensive line coach. His name was Bob Geiger. Uh, and uh, he was the hardest working guy of all the guys. And he would stay up late and he'd, he'd, he'd look at film and this, that, and the other. And I said, geez, you know, this guy here, he's, he's, he's not necessarily working harder Everybody's working hard, but he was really in. And that's what kind of gave me the, the urge to be an O-line coach. And then from there, uh, I just basically went to clinics and went to spring practices. And, 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 uh, and, and, and that's how it kind of all started. And believe it or not, my first job after Buffalo dropped football in that we, when I was a coach at Buffalo, it was during the Vietnam War, and it was during the protests. So there was protests on campus, and our last game against Holy Cross, the, uh, the liberals walked around the field or around the track as we were playing with the flags, etc., and so we went through that whole thing of, of uh, 
liberal students, and I'm not trying to be political, I'm just saying they were the yeah. liberals at that time, and they stormed the gym where I worked because we had the ROTC building in the gym. Yeah. And they said, ROTC must leave you be. ROTC must leave you. We were ready with bats. We were ready with whatever we could do to club them over the head if they broke in our building. So the point is, we have dropped football, so I had to go somewhere, and I went to Marshall. And Marshall was the team that had the plane crash sure. where 75 were killed. And then that's where we really, really, really had to work hard on football because the players we were working with were the freshman team and uh, because they were allowed to play. Uh, we were allowed to bring in freshmen and play. I think that was the first year they did that, and that was probably – in uh, around uh, oh, 19, oh my God, I'm, I'm trying to think when that, that first thing happened, 1970, maybe 71. But anyway, that's how the whole thing started. Uh, and, uh, and then it, it, after four years, the coach at Marshall resigned and I went to Boston College. And that's where I was first in first around star players because we had five or six five six seven guys that went in the nfl and became great offensive linemen that played for seven to ten years so that's where i had my first taste of not just coaching average players but good players you know anthony speaking of star players you were on the 1978 a disputed national championship team for USC the year you guys beat Alabama and then uh, but they still got ranked by the AP poll number one yeah but we got the coaches so yes who are you going to take writers or coaches you guys were the you guys were the, I'm going to take coaches the undisputed national <laughs> and we just didn't beat them we spanked them in uh in down in Alabama yes you did were loaded uh I'll never forget we um we ran student body right, student body left the entire game. Uh, one of the stories, I don't know if John Robinson said this just to get us fired up, but we were going down week three or four when it was pretty hot. I mean, hot and humid in Alabama compared to the heat in California. And they tried to get those uh, misters for our sidelines. And every company they called, they would say, nope, Bear Bryan will shut us down. Shut us down if we <laughs> so We get to the game. They have these misters on the sideline. We have buckets with a towel and ice in them. That was – we had buckets. And Keith Van Horn was our strong tackle, Brad Buddy. Marcus Allen was our fullback, and Charles White was our tailback. And they were loaded. They had Marty Lyons, Rich Wingo. They had David Hanna, McNeil. They had Dwight Stevens. I mean, they were – and uh, uh, you're right. They, they split the national championship. We still see it as a, a national championship because we beat them and the coaches voted us the number one team. But, uh, yeah, so – that was that was my junior year. Well, that and that that team, that '78 team, that roster, all 22 starters ended up playing in the NFL for some period of time. Isn't that correct? I tell you what, from that year to the following year, we had um, three of the four defensive backs were number one. Four of the five linemen were number one. The two running backs were three of the four linebackers. I think we had like, and the young guys on that team were uh, Bruce Matthews and Don Mosbar, who were number one. From that following year, we had four Hall of four Pro Football Hall of Famers uh, with Ronnie Lott, Marcus, or Marcus, Bruce Matthews, and myself. But yeah, we lost a lot of guys on that '78 team and played a lot of years in the NFL. 
you know, what a lot of people probably don't know about you is that you were also under legendary coach Rod Dito. You were also uh, on the 78 baseball roster for USC. Well, a lot of people don't know baseball is my first love. I started playing baseball at six or seven years old, and that was my childhood dream. Uh, the talent in baseball was uh, much more accelerated than football at that time. I played, uh, I was all state three years in baseball in high school and two in football, but USC, you know, at 6'5, 6'6, 300 pounds, gave me a scholarship. But I wanted to play baseball in college. And USC, it wasn't just uh, a recruiting tool, they had a track record of letting guys play baseball if they're good enough. But because of injuries, I had three knee operations in four years. I only played one year, and that was my sophomore year in school that I played, and we happened to win the World Series. And I pitched about 11 innings that year and uh, got a ring. So I got a ring in baseball and football that year. That's awesome. That is a, that's great. I, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's interesting because, you know, when people, you know, talk about guys that have done that um, at, at – and there's only been a couple really at a, at a decent level – um, you know, in either a major college program and certainly in the NFL, you know, I guess Bo, Bo Jackson did it and uh, Deion Sanders in the NFL, but there's, there are really not even today because of specialization. And, and the, the interesting piece to me is how many coaches uh, it, now talk about, they really like recruiting, you know, well-rounded athletes, guys that have played multiple sports as opposed to specialize. Well, you know, um, it's interesting because I think two or three years ago in the NFL draft, the majority of the 32 number one picks were multiple sport guys in high school. Mm. And I look at my personal development. I played third base in high school. I was 275 playing third base. So I had to sit. I had to move laterally forward. In basketball, I was 275 guarding guys that were 180 pounds. So I think that really helped me. What I had to do, you know, as an offensive lineman, I had to be able to bend my knees and, and move laterally and forward and backward. So I'm a big uh, proponent of multiple sports. As, as much as I know things are specialized, you still get some of those uh, top athletes that are playing at least two sports most of the time, sometimes three in high school. Do you, what do you see when you look across the board at, uh, and Coach talked about this from a coaching standpoint a minute ago, but when you look at whether it's offensive linemen, you know, in, in your niche or just any players at all, between your day versus now, do you see any disturbing traits or trends going on in the league with young guys coming up that uh, that bothers you a little bit? Well, I think, you know, for me, I watch a lot and I watch a lot of the offensive uh, technique. And I think, uh, as Jimmy was talking, alluding to, I don't see, in my humble opinion, I've talked to a couple of general managers in the last five years because they'll flat out ask me, what do you think of the technique? And I'll say, I think it's lacking. Um, I think the vision of guys coming on stunts is, is you know, we worked on that all the time, being aware of stunts and picking up that guy. You see so many guys come free. And I understand guys are faster and stuff, but I think if technically you're in a position to pick those up, uh, I think you have a better shot. And, and really up the middle, so many guys coming free up the middle on loops and stunts. And uh, But, you know, again, I'm not one to be critical other than just saying I don't think the technique is where when we had guys like Jimmy, even if they were coaching now, I think the – you know, maybe the other things would be difficult, but I think the technique would be much better. I'll tell you what I am seeing also is some of the teams that are using some of the plays that we used 15, 20 years ago with two backs, a full back. Okay. Now everybody nowadays has plays empty. They've got the quarterback in the backfield, everybody spread out or they're in the shotgun and, and, and the running back is to the left or the right. And 90% of the runs are from the shotgun. 
but there's two or three teams, the Vikings being one, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the New England Patriots, obviously when they had Brady, it helped, but they used a fullback. I'm not saying you have to have a fullback, but sometimes the basic football plays rather than trying to trick people with a lot of men in motion and spreading everybody out and then shifting them back in, which is all good stuff, but you can't block everybody on every play, but people are trying to to get uh, helmets or hats or block on the DBs that might come down and make a tackle. I remember in the old days, we might tell James Brooks, hey, listen, we're going to get all these guys blocked, but that one safety we may not be able to get, and you're one-on-one with him. Uh, Not that that happened quite a bit. Uh, That's one. And the second thing that I will say is this. If it wasn't for the San Francisco 49ers beating us in two Super Bowls, we would have a number of other players other than Anthony in the Hall of Fame. Yes, sir. And so I, I, yep. what I'm saying is we did not beat the 49ers in those games, but just visualize if the Bengals had just won one of those Super Bowls or both of those Super Bowls, then Kenny Anderson, Boomer yeah, Esiason, uh, James Brooks for sure, uh, perhaps Max Montoya, who was a great offensive oh. lineman, uh, yes, Tim Crumry, whoever – some of our outstanding players are would be in the Hall of Fame, but because we did not go to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, we only had one great player because he was so great that was able to make the Super Bowl. So that's 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 a and I think Dan Marino went to the Super Bowl, didn't win it, and he did make the Super Bowl. But if you do not win the Super Bowl, your chances of getting in the Hall of Fame are little to nil. You must, you better be a great, great player. And I, John, I want to make another point along those lines, not only for players, but so you look at the late 90s, who won the Super Bowl twice? And when they talk about the zone blocking scheme, they're like the gurus. And I, I hear that all the time. It's the Denver Broncos, they won, but. You look at what we did through the whole 80s, and we, you know, we led the league several times with the zone blocking scheme. But we also, if we win those two Super Bowls, then it's, you know, believe me, Alex Gibbs was probably an excellent coach. But then we win those two Super Bowls, and all of a sudden it's Jim McNally, the guru of the zone blocking scheme. So it goes for coaches and, and schemes also, along with players. It's yes, and I will, you, you in, reverence, yeah. in reverence to one coach – who did win a Super Bowl with the Colts, and he's deceased now in a motorcycle accident. Howard Mudd was very, very innovative early in the days. And uh, uh, I believe the only assistant coach now that's in the Hall of Fame and certainly deserving is Dick LeBeau because he was in it as a player and a coach. But like I say, uh, you don't want to have so many people in the Hall of Fame that it waters down, uh, you know, the Hall of Fame. But like I say, the uh, there are a few coaches uh, that uh, uh, should be in the Hall of Fame, and but they will not be in the Hall of Fame unless they've won a Super Bowl. You know, it's interesting because I'm not not only am I in the Hall of Fame, but I'm also on the Hall of Fame board. 
in the last board meeting, I brought that exact point up. I said, now, and here's what I said. This is, I said a very brief, I said, you have head coaches that are in the hall of fame. Granted all due respect to head coaches, but I played for three head coaches that never taught me one iota of technique in my hall of fame career. I said, when are assistant coaches going to be inducted in the pro football hall of fame? Cause you look at all these players in the hall of fame, it's their assistant coaches that made them hall of famers. So to his point, and I, I've already brought that up to the to the board, and I talk to sports writers about that all the time. That's and awesome. we did and with and last point, we did when I was with the Bengals for those 13 years, we had some great players. I mean, as we've had as, as players that were as good as guys in the Hall of Fame. I'll give you an example. Rodney Holman, a tight end. No one may even remember him. Max Montoya played right guard. Joe Walter was our right tackle, okay, and Boomer was left-handed. He had to block Reggie White, Mark Gastineau, and some of those other guys. So, And then Tim Crumry, who was probably the toughest interior lineman in football. But what I'm saying to you is, uh, I'm not going to mention everybody's name, but again, if you do not win the Super Bowl or are so destructive like a guy like Anthony was, then you are not going to get in. You know, Coach, that's a great springboard for kind of my last question. I got one good one for each of you guys, and I want to be respectful of your time as well. But, um, you know, you left the Bengals and, and coached for another 13-plus seasons with the Panthers, Giants, and Bills. And you've, you've talked glowingly about Anthony. You guys have both addressed your relationship. How much uh, from a respect and, and, and uh, just looking back at the, at the uh, you know, the treadwear of going through the, the, the grinds with, with – together, you two and in the O-line room, how much of your success and your reputation that served you after the Bengals would you attribute to having been there, not only with Anthony, but with those other great linemen? Well, I would say it, 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 everyone knew that I had coached Anthony Munoz with the Bengals, but again, you had to prove yourself with every team you would go to, okay? Yet your reputation of being a good coach with a particular team uh, held very little with the next team. Other than, oh, you coach Munoz, wasn't he great? Okay, now let's see how we're going to do here. It's, uh, it's no different than like Joe Gibbs, a great coach, right? And I believe he is in the Hall of Fame. But when he went back to the Redskins, I believe he did go to the, to the playoffs one time. But he, he and it wasn't that he was any less of a coach, but it was a different situation. It was a different time. And uh, you look at the critique they're now doing on Jim Harbaugh, right? He was a great coach with the 49ers. Now there's complaining about him at Michigan. So what I'm saying is that everything is a different situation. Not so much with the players, they change very little, but the coaches change a lot depending on how good the players are that they're coaching. Interesting. Anthony, I, I covered in the, uh, in the open, I, I covered all the, the, you know, some of your accolades. I'm going to, I'm going to get into more when, when we uh, introduce the podcast uh, and record that, but looking back on everything you had, we talked about briefly, you know, being able to win 
national championships uh, or the World Series in baseball, national championship in football in 78, you know, in 80 being selected third overall, 11 Pro Bowls, you know, ultimately culminating in the NFL Hall of Fame enshrinement. Um, when you talk to young players now, be they high school guys getting ready to go to college or college guys with hopes of playing in the NFL, what messages do you typically, uh, you know, tell those guys? Yeah, I give them several messages. Uh, first of all, um, do more than you think you need to do. Um, don't be the first guy or the last guy in and the first guy out. Um, you know, I tell them, take care of the details of small things. Um, I mean, I just tell them that, uh, you know, it's your job. I mean, even if, if you're in college, it's the way that you're getting your school paid for. I mean, you're in the pros. That's how you put food on the table. So you, it's your profession. I tell them you have a great opportunity, not only a great opportunity on the field while you're playing, but it can lead to other things. I mean, I'll never forget when I retired, I have two kids. My son, his first question to me when I told him, he says, so does that mean we can't go down on Saturday morning? Because all the players' kids would go down and play. I said, well, yeah, we can't go down anymore. And then my daughter, her question, she was nine years old. She goes, will we still be able to do things after you retire that we're doing now that you're playing? And I said, I don't know, hopefully. And I've been able to do even more. So I tell the, the young players, take care of your business. Be the best. First of all, be the best possible player you can be. And that will lead to other things. Don't worry about individual accolades. You know, that will come with team success. So there's a lot of different things. But I tell them, you know, it's, it's about paying attention to everything. You know, and um, when you have a great coach, making sure that you don't, you know, just pick and choose the things. But you, you take everything that they're saying. Not that... I retained everything, but I tried to. I tried to, you know, as offensive linemen in our team meeting room, we always sat in the first two rows. And then, you know, once we get our, gotten in our you know, meeting room, we were there and it was time to study. But you know, I just tell them, take care of the small things. Make sure you, you're you well prepared. That way, you know, a lot of coaches will say, the better prepared, the more intensity you can play with. It's when you're not real sure about what you're doing. That you're not going to be able to play 100%. You know, John, one big thing that I've noticed over the years since I've kind of been retired in my last few years, here's what's happening, okay? Anthony can look back at when he played his high school football in Ontario, and he can look at some of the great kids that he played with that never even went to college or never played in college football, but they were still good football players and they still love playing for, for, for the high school. And the same thing with SC, a lot of the players that played with Anthony at SC that after they graduated, they went into business. Now what's happening. And you know, this as well as any John working camps is now all that the kids are interested in is their YouTube, their highlight film, uh, you know, uh, you know, is my uh, what is that called there when they when they have their videos on YouTube? I forget the actual name of it, but uh, they really are only concerned about the next level. These are the pretty good players. Okay, so the point is some kid that's a real good player uh, are my highlights out there, my YouTube out there, uh, uh, do you have my uh, whatever? And 
the poor kid that's uh, he's he's uh, the second string center that's just so glad to get in the game and he loved football and he loved going to practice and he hated it when the season was over. That whole appreciation of your high school career when you're in high school and your college career when you're in college is gone. All they care about is the next step. Now, again, the college players that are outstanding know they're going to get some pretty good big money if they leave college early and this, that, and the other. And it's just the nature of the business nowadays. But that's what's missing in sports, particularly when you're talking about scholarship athletes, the good players, you know, are they uh, a four-star, a five-star, a six-star athlete? And whatever all of that system has done has taken the kids away from what it was really all about, okay? And that's what disappoints me the most about playing high school and college sports. Last to that point, I think it was like three years ago, two or three years ago, we were interviewing. He was supposedly a lot of these rankings had him the number one kid coming out of out of high school. And we asked him, why are you choosing to go to this school? He didn't give. I want to play on a national championship. I want to do this. He said, I'm going there to build my brand. That was the answer. I'm going wow. to school to build. And he was the number one recruit coming out of high school. I'm going there to build my brand. Well, you know, and, it's, and John, it's just as much as our faults because we work for those companies <laughs> that promote the kids so that scouts watch them and uh, we try to get them better. Well, you know, it's interesting that you both bring that up because, Coach, you know, it's, uh, I tell people all the time, you know, in I looked back on every phase of my development in my 23-year Army career, and I still say I, the biggest leg up that I had in terms of leadership and teamwork was the lessons that I took from playing high school and college football and, and how the element of all those basic things you're talking about, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, the team, you know, playership. Um, and, and because, you know, I, I used to say the army is the ultimate team sport, except that the wins and losses are counted a lot differently. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I absolutely agree with. And Anthony, to your point a minute ago with the young man that you were talking about, you know, with this whole, uh, NIL name, image, and likeness issue, uh, that has cropped up, of course, California started it and now it's, it's gone, you know, national, um, it's going to get worse before it gets better on that level, unfortunately. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry I have to come in at the end and make amends, but the uh, episode ended rather abruptly because we ran into some technical difficulties when we were saving the video after the session ended. So I wanted to say a special thank you to Hall of Famer Anthony Munoz, to Coach Jim McNally for doing the interview and coming on to be our guests on the pilot episode for season two. I apologize again for the abrupt ending, but I hope you'll subscribe below. Make sure you hit the bell so you get notified when our video episodes come out on YouTube. And please be sure and subscribe if you listen to the audio only episodes. We hope to see you for episode two next week. Take care and God bless. <laughs>